Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. We'll do open lines coming up next hour on Coast to Coast. Before we do, we'll let you join the conversation at the bottom of the hour. Uh, so in about uh, 20 minutes from now, we'll give the numbers and you can jump in with Harvey Kuvernick. We're talking about the book, uh, Docs That Rock, Music That Matters. But mostly we're just talking about the Bee Gees and this uh, upcoming documentary that's uh, being released tomorrow night on HBO because it contains this very crucial period about uh, about the death of disco. Before we get to that, though, and a guy who was there for the event, Harvey, you know, it, it's hard to underestimate the impact of both then the main chorus album, which is fabulous. It's a very good album. And then a great pop album. And then the the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which changes everything. I mean, it just to this day, it still it still sells. <laughs> I mean, you would be bands that came out with an album today would be lucky to get the annual sales that Saturday Night Fever soundtrack still gets. You know, one of the reasons for the for the backlash, which is sort of the aftermath of this incident that happened at Comiskey Park in Chicago, Illinois, um, this disco demolition event, um, we all. We all wore bell bottoms. We all wore some of that wardrobe. And so people bring that to the table as well. Um, would I, so you have that element. But I think with the Bee Gees, they became the face of disco um, far more than a lot of the pioneering artists or acts or producers. It was kind of a That's engineering... That's true. So there were other people making great disco. And remember, I was never in this death to disco thing. I spent many years happily not only going to discos, but if there was a disco artist on a record label, I was the only white guy that would they would call and say, will you interview the Hughes Corporation? Will you interview Barry right. White? Will you come meet Donna Summers? Are you kidding? The best catering, um, accessible people... I don't care if there were drum machines. They were trying to make a living and make music. And they made great music. And I'm not taking anything away from Donna Summer. Obviously, you know, she was, I mean, she's her own kind of genius. I think here's the problem. Now, check me if I'm wrong on this. I think the problem was not so much with the Bee Gees, it was just the overexposure. It was just, I was, I was a disc jockey during a lot of that period, and it was just every 70 minutes, just every, I mean, it, we, it just, and it was not just the, the disco artists, which I had no problem with. The hard part was seeing some of my rock idols sell out to sell well, everybody records. Everybody wanted that. Everybody remember the dance floor exactly. was equivalent to the end zone in football. Right. Everybody wanted to score. The other thing was the accessories, shall we say, attached to the disco genre. You know, in 1976, Billboard established a disco chart. And with that brings a disco body shaper stuff and the accessories. Right. It becomes that, and that's not even talking. And also, the media glamorized um, the incessant drum beats, 
some of the drug use, shall we say. Oh, yeah, tons of it, right? Also, you also had, and not because I have some degree in sociology and health from San Diego State. (laughs) Go Aztecs. You also have a situation where uh, a a culture was developed uh, in clubs, underground clubs, uh, uh, Latino, Latina, uh, black, uh, gay, uh, developed there that all of a sudden seeped into... Um, mainstream, mainstream culture, exactly. And, and who really did the exploitation dance on top of it, which just drove a lot of people crazy. But the other thing that I think inherently um, on why disco drove a lot of people bonkers, including DJs that had, that that missed their rock and roll organic. Me too. And we're listening to machines. Right. I remember 40, 42 years ago, I was in a studio and I ran into some of the members of Toto, Steve Lukather in right. Toto, and they had just seen kind of a very early presentation of a drum machine. This could be like 72, 74, 75. Somebody brought in a drum machine to show the members of Toto's something that was going to be at the NAMM convention. And I said to young Steve Lukather, and he might have even been doing the Boss Skaggs album, Silk Degrees, and I said, you know, God, I, I kind of wanted to be a drummer. In uh, Steve said, we when they saw the demonstration, they all turned to each other and said, "Kill it before it multiplies." Right, right. Because I thought it would put people out of work. Of course, now when you listen current music with auto tune, uh, rap, hip hop, all kinds of music, it's uh, not. There's no more real trumpets. And horn players and right. brass people and arrangers, that stuff's being sampled and used. Why don't that? Why why don't we get the backlash on that? I, I here here's why I think. And again, I'm not. I think that's a really fair point. I also think, you know, the the it's the first ones that take the arrows in the chest, yeah. right? So it, the drum machine was just they the, that whole synth sound wasn't very sophisticated yet either, and it was annoying, and it was the same thing on every record. But more than that, it was somebody who I loved, Rod Stewart, doing Do You Think I'm Sexy. It was, you know, Kiss um, doing a disco record, a band that I loved. It was the Rolling Stones. It was just like, oh, come on. And I, I tweeted this out earlier that I don't think that the disco demolition, the disco sucks, the end of disco movement, I don't think of it so much as, as some people will often talk about as being like a, like a, you know, with tones of racism. There had always been soul music. There had always been dance music. That wasn't the problem. I thought we were killing disco in order to free the hostages. <laughs> That's how I looked at it. Well, I have to say... I threw in the disco towel. I mean, I've enjoyed watching the development of the bump and the hustle. I was in some super... Remember, I had danced on teen shows like American Bands. <laughs> I'm very proud. Uh, I, you know, but I have to admit, I really liked the people doing the robot. But once there was a dance called the Watergate, count me out. Okay, we'll leave it there. So here's, a, here's who I want to bring in. I want, Harvey, I want you to meet my friend Dan Filato. He is a, um, an executive producer of, uh, of radio shows with um, 
and podcasts such as Artie Lang. And then when Artie Lang was doing a, a show with uh, Nick DiPaolo, uh, and uh, he also worked with Stephen A. Um, and he was um, the producer for uh, Stephen Gary in Chicago, although he wasn't yet the head producer for that show. He had just started to work there, but he was there that night. You mean on the loop? Yes, on the loop, and uh, be, and this is because Steve Dahl had moved over from WDAI, which had been a great station until they became Disco DAI, which did not help in Chicago. No. Uh, and uh, Dan Flato, are you there? Danny, we're bringing you up. Can you hear us? Yes, I am. Hey, Dan. I, I could go through your long list of people that you worked with. We we just don't have that much time. I should mention Harry Shearer as well. But you you were there that night of Comiskey, in Comiskey Park for Disco Demolition. You had been around in the early part of the conversations about this uh, promotion. Describe for Harvey and for the rest of us what was the behind-the-scenes building up to that night, July 12th, 1979, and this big radio promotion that was supposed to go off during the seventh inning stretch and then let the game finish? Well, first off, I'm a Libra, if that makes a difference with you guys. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't okay. at all. <laughs> not at all. You're not at the club. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I was an intern, and the White Sox had come to the radio station and said, hey, you know, these guys, Stephen Gary, are very popular. Why don't we do something with them? And specifically Mike Vec, Bill Vec's son. And there were some meetings, and Bill and Mike, mostly, and our sales guys got together and said, hey, why don't we do this? And they came up with an idea, which was to bring the disco records and get in for a reduced price. And then they find, and they pitched it to Steve, and then Steve came in on the meetings, Stephen Gary, and then, you know, nobody, we, at that time, the talk was five to 7,000 people will show up. And that, said Steve, was a nightmare, and he almost canceled it. And then, we, you know, we started to build up, and we promoted it and promoted it and promoted it. And, you know, no one had any clue at all. In fact, even being there... In the first game, it wasn't in the seventh inning stretchy. It was in between the two games. Oh, that's what it was. Quite, Sorry. It was a doubleheader, yeah. It was a doubleheader. Right. That's right. Sorry. Play night doubleheader. And uh, no one had any clue of what was going to happen in between those two games. All right. Now, I, I, you were there then in the conversation. So, and Harvey, if you've got a question, jump in. Again, we're talking with a, a guy who was there that night of disco demolition, Dan Filato. I I I don't remember it, and I was I was not there that night for the event, but I was in Chicago at the time. I don't remember there being this big racist element that somehow people keep talking about as a subtext for that no. night. Was that ever part of the conversation? Never, never yeah. once. And you know, quite frankly, White Sox Stadium is on the south side of Chicago, right? So, and you know, why would we want to? Uh, alienate or incite yeah. or anything right but you know i i do think there's one element and i and this, and the documentary shows this i had hints of it um yes people brought records to blow up disco albums and all that but i would say two to five percent of two to five percent of the albums bought 
with things like Superfly, Stevie Wonder songs in the Key of Life, Alex That's wrong. albums. <laughs> That's just wrong. <laughs> Those are great albums. Right. Yeah. And so and I'm some not all two to five percent, but these were rhythm and blues tablets that were kind of tossed in there too, and they certainly weren't disco um, albums. I'm going to guess here and say there were probably a few guys who wanted to get in and they took those albums from their sister's pile when she wasn't looking yeah, in order to get them exactly to the gate. Right. right, Danny? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, it was most, it, Ian, you hit it out of the park with your uh, analogy about it was in your face. Right. Radio stations were changing from rock stations to disco. We yeah. would have two and three disco stations in every city. Right. And for us, quite frankly, we didn't fit in the clothes, the disco clothes, me hmm. and my friends. And that is why we <laughs> didn't like the music. <laughs> you didn't look good in Kiana? No, I, I did not. <laughs> you you didn't know, look I'm, good. I'm an Italian-American, and I sweat a lot, and polyester just doesn't <laughs> hold up well. <laughs> That's funny. So, again, I think this is so that it, let, for people who don't know about it, it how what was the, the record who the, the number of people who showed up that night obviously blew the doors out and also the parking lot, too. Right. There were about 45,000, 50,000 inside the park and about 20,000 outside. And still, in the seventh and eighth inning of the first game, we had no clue. I was there. I brought my cousin with me, and my cousin had this terrible earache. <laughs> so uh, every like uh, inning break, I'd have to take him to the bathroom and drop iodine in his ear. We were going back and forth and back and forth. It wasn't until then Steve and Gary went on the field, and I was on the field for about two minutes, and then my cousin was waving me, hey, we got to do the iodine thing again. My ear is hurting. So I took him to the bathroom to, to drop the iodine in his ear, and about five minutes later, when we came out, and we were walking through uh, the uh, under, uh, you know, underneath Comiskey Park, I'm looking at television, and I said to my cousin Bobby, I said, listen, hey, they're showing the free beer night at, uh, in Cleveland. Look at all those people on the field. I had no clue that that was a live camera. <laughs> I, knew they, I, I knew they broke away in between the two games. Right. They, gonna, they didn't show this. And then we went back on the field, and then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. Yeah. Uh, Harvey, a, a question or a thought on that? You know, it's interesting. It's a world context is king. It's a world before MTV is really established. It's a world long before the Internet. So this is this is in Illinois. This is in Chicago, but it made such a big impact. Oh yeah. But what I noticed in research and talking to some of the writers over the decades, the writers secretly and and even overtly like this event. They they were happy this happened. It was almost biblical yep. that they could join in, and the, even though there could have been chaos and liability and some real craziness that happened, everybody wanted a change. This is that's uh, a good this, point. It's, this is a year before John Lennon. The '80s are coming to us. Everybody wanted a return to organic stuff, but but still. The concept of bringing albums to destroy, um, there's, you know, I never could grasp 
that. I knew it was a publicity promotional stunt gone a little awry, and it certainly must have got the station ratings and all kinds of stuff. But yeah. but still, it was there was some symbolism of an of a, of a genre we'll call it. Oh yeah, really stopping in its tracks. Although to this day, if you go see the Rolling Stones, Miss You gets the most applause on the meter. Right, Rod Stewart is trapped doing. Do you think I'm sexy? So you see the ramifications of involvement. Forty years later, disco. The same, some of these same people who were 20 are now 60. They're paying money to see some of their people do things <laughs> that have disco tracking. Yeah, no, that's true. And there's, there was, just to make the point about Chicago, I'm not saying that Chicago, like any northern city, didn't have its r- racial issues. But generally around the music, that wasn't it. And in Chicago, WLS, WCFL, these stations were legends and they were you know they were these giant sticks because it was a very classic top 40 format with a lot of r&b nobody had any i don't know danny nobody had any any animosity towards stevie wonder and everybody thought superfly was pretty fly so i mean it's like that that part it's interesting that those albums got thrown into the mix but i don't think it was emblematic of the movement i think your point though harvey and disco demolition and again we're talking about uh, kind of the end of things for the disco era and for the bgs in a lot of ways is that night in july of 1979 i think it was very cathartic and i think that catharsis maybe just let out a lot more than people thought was there and i think that may have been the most surprising thing Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.